The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the web. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity, From Victim to Victor, and The Complete Idiot's Guide to Recovering from Identity Theft. She's testified many times in Congress and the California Legislature on privacy and identity theft issues. And you may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, ABC, O'Reilly Factor, and many other shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacypiracy. Hey, Mari, what's our show about today? Well, our show is about law and technology, and have we got a wonderful guest who's been on our show before. I love him. I think he's wonderful. He's brilliant, and his name is Robert Brownstone, and he is the director of law and technology for a law firm up in, in the Silicon Valley area, Fenwick & Wesp LLP. So let me tell you a little bit about my friend Bob. He is also the chair of a committee that I'm on, for the State Bar of California, but he's an attorney, as I said, with Fenwick and West, and he advises clients on electronic discovery, electronic information management, retention, destruction policies and protocols, information security, and privacy. And he also collaborates with clients as to computer solutions, enabling compliance with legal obligations. And what the neat thing about Bob is not only is he really techy and, and uh, well-versed in the technical arena, but he's really a great attorney. And he's a wonderful speaker. He writes on many law and technology issues. He frequently is quoted in the press as an expert on electronic information. And he also teaches electronic discovery classes at the University of San Francisco School of Law and Santa Clara University School of Law. And he serves on the advisory board of the National Employment Law Institute and on the board of directors of ALM's Internet Law and Strategy Letter. And he is, as I said, he has been very active on the um, and, and chair of the State Bar of California Law Practice Management and Technology Executive Committee. And he you can learn a lot more about him at our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy and also at Fenwick, that's F-E-N-W-I-C-K dot com. Thank you, Bob, for joining us. Thank you so much for having me back. Oh, it's wonderful. You are you are just such a treat and it's been so great to get to know you better. So, Bob, you know, we're sitting here in Irvine. We have lots of uh, cars driving by with people who are small business owners as well as large business owners in Newport Beach, Irvine. So let me ask you something. If If a company doesn't process a lot of credit card information or maybe none at all, or they don't have a lot of uh, individual customers, they do B2B business, uh, should they be worried about the leakage of personal identifiable, in, identifiable information? Well, they should. And the reason is, is that every company has employees, and some have more than others. But a lot of times the knee-jerk reaction on the behalf of a company 
away, sometimes even the large ones, but often medium and small as well, we don't take in a lot of uh, credit card or any credit card information, and we don't house a lot of uh, bank account type or financial information, but everyone has employees. And if you really start drilling down with companies, uh, with the folks who keep track of payroll or HR or any of those type of uh, records of employees, sometimes it's kind of a wide open area. For example, if someone maintains a, a database or even just a spreadsheet with all the Social Security numbers and, and address and first name, last name, for example, of the workers at the company and can plunk that spreadsheet down on a laptop uh, and walk around with the laptop, then there's information that's at risk. And especially if they're self-insured, think about all the medical information might, one might have as well. Sure. And, and as I know you are well aware, a few years ago, California became one of the first states to add to the duties to protect uh, and to give notice of breach if you didn't protect medical information or health information in addition to financial right. information on individuals. So I often even have to remind some big companies, though, that that it's not just uh, your, I mean, it not, it's not just your customers. I mean, that's kind of being flip about it, but it's not just who your customers are, but everyone's got coworkers, everyone's got employees, and we're all in this together. So uh, there are a lot of other people to think about. And there have been incidents uh, in recent years where one of them was Starbucks that went all the way up to the Ninth Circuit where uh, a lot of employee information had been lost, I think, on a laptop. Exactly. Even, and this law even applies to government employees. So we've had government breaches here of government employees in the state of California. So people have to think like, goodness, they are our inside customers. And so even though we may not have outside customers, so to speak, we have inside customers. Exactly. It's, it's a whole other really important constituency. And it includes, when I work with a client, it includes whoever I'm sitting chatting with. And it, it, some clients that have taken it seriously they really think it through from, uh, and it's not a rocket science perspective. It's more, uh, where do we keep information in, in paper? And more likely, where do we keep information electronically? And who has access? Uh, and if it's a limited number of people, that's great. Uh, if it is any kind of restriction enforced on who can pull information down to a local laptop or other machine, that, that can be a way to kind of stem the problem at its source. But a lot of times people aren't thinking through kind of all the different trails that information may go. And that's such an important point that you said at first, which is, first of all, you have to know where, do, what are you collecting and where is it all? <laughs> because people forget that stuff can be on, on anything from an iPhone to thumb drives to CDs to all these other outside electronic devices. People forget about that. Right. One of the best lessons I got in my career, and I've been at Fenwick now for pretty much half my legal career, and I'm actually in my fourth different role there. A lot of them were pure IT and some were pure law, and now I'm, I'm, I'm in a mix of them uh, with the tech and the law, as you described earlier. One, one of, once our IT leader sent me out to talk to a client and to talk to our litigation team about doing a collection for e-discovery. And he, he said, you know, you are completely capable of doing this, but here's, here's some direction. Think about uh, just asking the same kind of questions you'd ask uh, in, in a fact inquiry or in, in a deposition or any other uh, situation where you're interviewing someone. Just go through 
logically where the information might be. And that's really true, not just of data collections, but also of the kind of things that you and I always worry about, which are, gee, what, what are people doing to protect information as it travels through its various courses? Exactly. And and people think, oh, they, they forget about it when they want to get rid of it. You know, they don't even remember what they did with it. It's sitting in some storage bin and then they forget and throw that storage bin away and they don't even realize that there's all sorts of sensitive data in it. Right. I mean, we tr- you kind of it's kind of a, a life cycle of information. And, and the, the, I guess in, it, in, in some ways it's good that uh, the Federal Trade Commission and, and its regs and uh, the statutes that they passed the regs under have gotten a little more thorough over the years in some sense at looking not just the beginning of the life cycle when, for example, consumer credit report information gets gathered, but also the end of the life cycle. But it's one thing for there to be rules in the books. It's another for for people who are just maybe just starting a company or a company that kind of grows faster than its compliance. Uh, frameworks, let's say, grows, it's sometimes hard to deal with the nitty-gritty and really think of all, all the ways that, that information starts and then moves and then has a kind of a death date or an end point. Yeah, and Bob, you're right. I mean, there's so much information everywhere, and people are collecting it, and it's so it's so valuable now. You know, we know that there's just tons of information collected by companies, and they don't, most of the time, they aren't really uh, clarifying where it's going, who's got it, how can it be accessed, have they segregated the sensitive from the non-sensitive. It's, uh, it, it's pretty overwhelming because you can just gather so much in such a tiny uh, thumb drive, for example. Sure. The other thing that's hard is that uh, people are realists, and, and I try to be a realist as well. Instead of just advising or consulting with doom and gloom, sense of all the terrible things that can happen, uh, a lot of times information management projects, and that's what I am doing whenever I'm working on any of my areas with a client, the client can get daunted and they feel like, well, am I going to be completely assured that nothing's going to get lost or compromised? Am I going to be completely sure that if I have a retention or a destruction policy that I'm keeping everything I should and I'm getting rid of everything I should? And the answer is no, of course you're not going to be 100% right. perfect. That, and that's not the goal, though. The law doesn't require uh, either in uh, dis- the discovery setting or the information security setting. No, no one requires perfection, and the courts tend to not require perfection, but there are guidelines you can follow and there are certain standards you can follow. And part of what you do when you come up with a protocol, you should be realistic, depending on the size of your company and your resources, about what what you're going to try to accomplish and what you're going to uh, realistically either back burner or deprioritize. And you have to realize that you can't chase your tail and feel like, well, unless I'm going to be perfect, I shouldn't have any program in place. It's better to have some measures. And encryption, of course, as you know, is one of them. Uh, in the sense that a lot of times I'll talk to a, a client and I'll say one of the first questions they'll ask, whatever kind of matter it is when I do intake, is do you encrypt your laptops? And sometimes they'll say no, and sometimes they'll have that same knee-jerk reaction. Well, we don't take in credit card information. We don't have a lot of personal information. We don't have many or any individual customers. And they'll say, well, do you have a secret formula? Do you have, right. uh, do you have trade secrets? Do you have a customer list? Do you have... Your, your strategic plan, do you have anything that you wouldn't want to get into someone else's hands? Oh, well, sure, we have all that. Well, <laughs> can anyone in the company carry, you know, pull it off the network 
and carry around our laptop? Yes. Well, you know, the same encryption software or built-in encryption in some systems now that protects against individuals' information getting stolen and used for identity theft, it'll protect the whole host of information. So part of what can be convincing to clients uh, is that, well, gee, this one measure we can take, it's a practical step, it can protect against a lot of problems. It can protect our workers. It can protect our customers. It can also protect kind of the company's you know, secret sauce or whatever its, uh, its uh, important uh, gold mine or whatever the most important things are to the company. Everybody's got something that needs protection. And, and along with that, it also protects them from liability, too, because of our security breach bill in California. So if they encrypt information and it is acquired by a third party who's not authorized, there's really no duty to disclose as long as it's encrypted, right? Exactly. And I kind of say, I tee that up when I, when I do internal training or when I teach at, at conferences like you do on these issues. I'll say, well, there, t- there are two reasons to encrypt, and one is altruistic and one's very selfish. And the first one is, well, you, you want to protect other people's information as well as your own. And the second one is the, the more selfish, which is that because of the way the statutes are written, if you've taken that encryption step to protect the information, if there is a loss or a compromise of information, you, you are not under that duty to give notice. And that's a huge uh, duty. It really puts you and your company in, in the public eye, in the court of public opinion. You can take a big hit. Yeah, it's expensive. Costly. So it is, it is something that, that really, as you point out, should be kind of the equal in, in you know, foremost in mind as well as the, the, you know, the good reasons to protect the information. Right, and, and it's kind of expensive to even have to do that disclosure if you have to notify everybody or write letters and, and you talk to your... There's yeah. a website, I, I forget what it's called, I think it's Tech 404 or something, it's got a cost calculator that if you plug in uh, a certain number of people whose information is lost, it'll start calculating that if you froze their credit reports, and if you paid for that for two years, and if you gave the written notice, it kind of totals up all the money it'll cost. Yeah. And I, you know, hate to always to to try to um, think about selfishness, but on the other hand, if it's it's a pure business issue that if you're going to take a real hit in your pocket, uh, uh, so to speak, as a company then it does uh, bring home the importance of protecting information. Right. So the carrot was encrypt and the stick <laughs> is, you know, you're going to have to pay lots of money. <laughs> you know, talking about employees, because I know you're very active in, in working with the National Employment Law Institute, there's a lot of issues with regard to privacy and technology with employees. So what about employees who post on such sites as WikiLeaks, what what is that going to do? I mean, is there any way that we can stop that? What can we do about that? Well, there, there, there are a whole host of issues raised by that. One of the, the topics that I've been training on uh, in the National Employment Law Institute presentations I do for years is WikiLeaks, and no one used to know, know what I was talking about. Now, of course, with all the news about the diplomatic cables getting leaked, and reports from the Iraq and Afghanistan war getting leaked. Uh, it's really come to the forefront. Again, it's in a way in the, the same category of you're never going to stop someone who is dead set on uh, taking some information and exposing it to the world. On the other hand, the same types of practical measures can be helpful. And one is, is uh, that there are a lot of tools now 
that actually can readily, from at least from the employer's network, can block access to certain sites. Uh, and, if, and, and if an employer doesn't want to be so restrictive on what it lets its employees do out on the web in general, then another thing you can do is certain kinds of information shouldn't be available to everyone within a company, just like we talked about coworkers, uh, social security numbers and payroll type information. Really only a very limited number of people should ever get to that. If there are the real key uh, aspects of information that a company doesn't want getting out anywhere, then they shouldn't let everyone have access to it. It's easier said than done, but there are ways to have... uh, partitions on network drives uh, within a network uh, and to have uh, uh, protection in, in documents and information that's in databases by only giving, uh, by having restricted access to some of the information. So there's things you can do, uh, again, with the understanding, no, you're never going to stop everything. But uh, the risks are greater, of course, nowadays, uh, and the, the risks of everyone knowing about something are greater. So, again, it's almost a checklist-type approach, a very practical approach of thinking through who gets to this information and if we can kind of limp, you know, narrow that down, maybe we, we, we create uh, less risk. And, and doesn't that issue also go to all the social media? Everybody's doing social media, and what are they putting up on, on their Facebook or MySpace or LinkedIn or wherever they're playing on the internet what what do you suggest for that what kind of policies or what is what can we do as employers well employers should do a few things and and one is to educate themselves on some of the less obvious risks that are out there I'll give you a few examples one is that uh, there I think it's important for employers to update to have a technology acceptable use policy and to update it so that it covers social media, and the segment that covers social media, I think, should do three things. And one is it should have a list of uh, do's and don'ts that apply, whether it's an employee's own social media page or uh, an employer-sponsored one, and then have a separate segment on each of employee-sponsored and employer-sponsored. If it's employee-sponsored, you have to be careful not to restrict people's ability engage in concerted action to talk about the employer however they want. On the other hand, it's perfectly acceptable for an employer to lay out ground rules saying something to the effect of, if you are, have identified yourself on your personal blog or your personal Facebook page as working for us, uh, you have to be clear that when you start expressing opinions, you're, that they're your opinions. You have to disclaim that they are the opinions of our company, because otherwise you're opening us up to liability. Uh, and the other thing is there are certain uh, education issues. There are certain things that are not obvious to people when they go out on the web. For example, in LinkedIn, there's a really good example. A lot of employers have a policy that no one's allowed to give a, a reference or recommendation of a current or former employee. Uh, and I'm not expressing an opinion here on whether that should be an employer policy or not. As a practical matter, most employers follow that. Right. But there's a feature on LinkedIn where with a click or two, anyone can request a, re- a recommendation or an endorsement uh-huh. one of their contacts. Right. Conversely, uh, there is a, a way to readily um, a- recommend someone, in effect. You can just pick someone and say, hey, I really like this person. And that can be a real problem because it's kind of an end run around uh, an employer policy. What if someone got fired because they, they didn't do a good job, or at least someone didn't think they did a good job, and then 
there there are all these uh, uh, references out on LinkedIn saying but from other other uh, supervisors at the company saying how great the person was. Yeah, or just think about if they were embezzled. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's I mean, even uh, worse, right? Yeah, who knows? Maybe they did something terrible, but they were very you right. know they had a lot of friends. Right. So right. Some of their close friends <laughs> have gone on record, and and uh, in a way, it's a, it's people people's sense of. Um, I don't want to call it decorum, but people's sense of any kind of private communication is just, it kind of goes by the wayside when they're out on the web. But, of course, you're on LinkedIn, and you're, you're checking a box that you recommend someone, and then you're writing some glowing reference. Now millions of people could possibly see it, or one person could see it and share it with everyone, even if they're not on LinkedIn. It's even more uh, risky and problematic, potentially, for your employer then if you got one phone call or one, you wrote one little letter to, you know, someone trying to hire your former colleague. Right. So it just kind of, I want to say the brain turns off, but it, it's almost that um, the, the, these, one, these technologies, which are wonderful, and they enable you to connect and they enable you to make a name for yourself and network, uh, they've developed so fast, and people's excitement about them have kind of outpaced uh, people's measured uh thought process on, well, gee, why am I doing something in front of millions of people or thousands of people that I wouldn't do or be allowed to do in front of two or three? Yeah, I I think that everyone just thinks, you know, if they're doing this from their office or their home or their kitchen and they're interacting, they forget. They, They really forget that this is really for the whole world to see. And they forget all about the policies. And that's probably why each employer should bring these issues up. They should make themselves aware of this and get that kind of education so they can say, when you're on LinkedIn, if you do this, it's going to appear like it's from our company. It puts us at you know, legal exposure. Right. I mean, that's the way to express it. We, when, when I work with clients, I'm, I'm working with management, but what I'm working with management is not to become big brother or big sister, but I'm working with them to assess risk and to educate their employees and to say, look, we're going to let you do X, Y, and Z, but you know, P, D, and Q are, are risky uh, behaviors. Uh, the other thing that can be helpful, and we actually, in our law firm uh, technology acceptable use policy, when I helped uh, revise it, we, uh, we added a social media segment, and we actually added a little kind of just educational sentence or two saying, just for your own knowledge, having in, in, in a way, we didn't go in great depth, but we said you might want to know that um, things you post on the web could have a long lifespan. Uh, you might just want to learn more about the privacy settings on the various social media sites. Uh, you just might want to think about uh, think before you post. Right. <laughs> uh, another thing that's interesting is the posting of photos, whether it's a video on YouTube or a photo on LinkedIn or uh, a tagged photo on, on Facebook. There can be issues around that as well, and I've had different clients have completely different perspectives. For example, we actually represent a lot of the social media sites, and in, and in addition to those, that clientele, being in Silicon Valley, we've got a lot of clients that are new, up and coming, very, uh, they're really trying to be cutting edge and have young employees. One, one client wanted to be really strict. Uh, the general counsel, she said, we, you know, we don't want anyone... She, she, you know, she and I worked together on her company's new acceptable use policy. Said so we don't want anyone uh, posting photos of a of a coworker or, or uh, an individual client or customer without the permission of that person. So I thought, well, that's a kind of neat little thought. I put that in a draft policy for another client, and that client said, oh, no, 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 we want to do that. We, for example, we have a uh, a European office, and we have a 
an office in another part of the world, when you have an office in the U.S., and people don't actually get to see each other unless they, they have the, the social event and they take a bunch of photos and post them. So we don't want to <laughs> da- camp down on that. We want everyone to see how fun it is to be in the office in the Ukraine versus, <laughs> versus in Poland or in the U.S. So we want everyone to kind of get to know everyone in that way. So absolutely not. This is way too, way too strict. So mm-hmm. I think the lesson is that um, there really isn't one approach and uh, what I try to do is get a read on what, what the client's goals are and what it's really going to want to enforce and have the will to enforce on a consistent basis because otherwise you're writing up a policy that you're not going to be following at all or most of the time. And you also can get in a lot of trouble in that sense because sometimes if you've got a very strict policy that stakes out too much ground, on the management side, and then you you never really enforce it until there's someone that is just universally disliked, and then you kind of cramp, you know <laughs> come down hard on that person. They're going to point out, hey, wait, you're being arbitrary, right? So like me, and they'll have a good argument on a, on a lot of fronts if that really is the case. So I try to get people to be reasonable uh, and understand that it's more art than science. But there are again, there are certain things that you have to think through in terms of what the, what are the risks and what are the benefits of taking different approaches. Right. And once you do that, and I know that you tell them to do this, is once they have a policy, they have to make sure everybody understands it and they're trained on it because it's not even worth it to have a policy that nobody understands or nobody en- enforces at all. That, sure. That's going to cause more of a uh, legal liability, and not only that, you're not going to get people to follow what you've asked them to do. And you've spent a lot of time and energy, and you've gotten someone like Bob to give you great advice, and then you don't follow it. That's so. true. That's a great point. I know you're you are uh, as enthused about teaching in general as I am. So. Well, we are speaking with a wonderful professor and a wonderful lawyer, and he is the director of law and technology with Fenwick and West. LLP up in the Silicon Valley, which is a wonderful place for all this technology. And he is a techie as well as a really fantastic lawyer. You know, I just want, we don't even actually have a lot of time, believe it or not, but I wanted to ask you about uh, the impact on the private sector employer, uh, employers with regard to the U.S. Supreme Court decision in 2010, Quan versus Arch Wireless. Sure. Uh, I actually, if anyone out there is interested, and of course that goes for you too, uh, I have a uh, what I call my top, top ten list of takeaways from the Quan case. Uh, it was a, a case that dealt with a, a public sector employer, the the police department in Ontario, California. Right. I remember the case. Uh, and it dealt with uh, a cop on a SWAT team who was using a, a, his employer issued pager to send messages to his wife and to his girlfriend. Yep. Uh, uh, Text messages. And the question was really how far can the employer go uh, depending on what, what its written policy is and what it actually does in the trenches, kind of what you were just laying out on. Are people educated about the policy and then what's the enforcement? In that case, uh, the, the a lieutenant, the person who was told to go around and collect uh, monthly fees from cops who went over their monthly character limit, he said things to the effect of, you know, if you just pay for the extra characters you, you hit out with your thumbs on these pagers, no one's going to look at your content. Well, that was not the policy. So because of that discrepancy between what a manager, in effect, told workers and what the written policy said, that's why that case goes all the way to the Supreme Court. The key takeaways are uh, kind of what you and I have been uh, 
discussing today, that you should be really clear in the policy about what the, are the do's and don'ts. Uh, be, as, be as specific as possible in educating managers and employees about what the parameters are, and then try to enforce as consistently as possible. Uh, there are also some decision points that uh, for public sector and private sector employers alike need to be made, and they're, they're as follows. What if an employee has a, a smartphone that is provided by the employer and paid for by the employer? Probably pretty clear cut. But what if they have a smartphone that they buy and they're allowed access into the employer uh, email system? Uh, or what if they are also... Uh, reimbursed for part of the cost or all the cost. Is that all going to be addressed in a policy? It probably should. Yes. It, it, again, there's no one answer, uh, but if you want to avoid ambiguity, that's something you need to address. And you know what? We are out of time, Bob. That was perfect. We at least got to talk about it that a lot of our people driving by understand a little bit more about the policies that they have and that they have to have, and also our students who are going out into the world start to understand that they have some accountability too. So, Bob, we will have you back again very soon, and thank you so much for joining us. You're terrific. I enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Okay. Thank Bye. you. Bye-bye. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank, host of Privacy Piracy. Join us every Monday morning right here on KUCI at 8 a.m. and visit our website at KUCI.org slash Privacy Piracy. And write us emails about what's important to you in the information age. Thank you. Stay private. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.